just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Has anybody ever said that to you? Uh, within this past week with uh, coronavirus spreading, it seems uh, that we all want to know what to do. What should we do? We want to be told what to do. Life has been a mix of surreal and sober. Uh, some in our community have wondered if this, means, if this is the means through which God brings about their end. Some have wondered what they're supposed to do if this is the end. After all, Jesus, in Luke chapter 21, verse 11, Jesus said that there will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. That is to say, contagious diseases. Is the end near? What should we do? How should we live? Well, this morning, by God's sovereign providence, the passage that is before us is the passage that we were going to consider uh, for several months now. The passage that is before us is about how we are called to live in light of the end. The Apostle Peter, he tells us what to do. He tells us what should mark our lives if it is the end. And I pray that this passage will help us think about this day in light of the last day. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 is what we'll be looking at together this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 1016. As we once again turn to Peter's letter, we should remember that Peter's writing to brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ scattered throughout what we know today as modern Turkey. Peter opened his letters, his letter by encouraging believers to rejoice in the eternal inheritance that they have in Jesus Christ. He exhorted these elect exiles to fix their hope on glory while they sojourn here on earth. Most recently, at the close of chapter 3, Peter has summed up his teaching by saying, Lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in your suffering. For Jesus suffered. He was lifted up on the cross. He was lifted up from the grave. And lifted up to glory so that you might be saved. In other words, Peter has been saying, if you suffer, then suffer like Jesus. If you suffer, then suffer for the things that Jesus suffered for. Suffer for righteousness' sake. This was the message of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, chapter 3, verse 14, and chapter 3, verse 17. This morning, we are rounding out teaching from Peter that began in chapter 2, verse 11. From chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 4, verse 11, the last verse that we'll consider today, the Apostle Peter, he, he is addressing the subject of suffering for righteousness' sake. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the Apostle gives us two clear exhortations. First, in verses 1 to 6, the Apostle Peter says, Think like Christ when he was in the world. You can see that in verse 1. Take a look at chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Peter. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then Peter, he goes on to unpack what it means to think like Christ while he was in the world, when he suffered. And then at verse 7, if you skip your eyes down there, Peter, he pivots to the second main exhortation, which is this. Live like it's the end of the world. You can see that right there in verse 7. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. As he did with the first six verses of the chapter, so he does with verses 7 through 11. He goes on to unpack what it means to live like it's the end of the world. So here are the two headings that we're going to study this text under today. Think like Christ when he was in the world. Verses 1 to 6, and live like it is the end of the world. Verses 7 to 11. And I pray that as we open God's word today, our Lord Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, would be pleased to transform our minds and our lives so that everything God would be glorified. Let's begin to look at this text together and consider Peter's first point, which is this. Think like Christ when he was in the world. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4 now. Beginning there in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For 
Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give accounts to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Well, the main command in these verses is found right there in the middle of verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Peter is calling. He's commanding believers in Jesus to think in a certain way, to adopt a particular mindset, the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note the military terminology in this command. Believers are to be armed. This will be a battle, and therefore this is a call to arms. This is a spiritual warfare, and whether you like it or not, you're already in the battle. You see, as soon as you pledged allegiance to Jesus in repentance and faith, displayed in your baptism, you were thrust into battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Peter's command and call to arms is predicated upon something that has already occurred, namely that Christ suffered in the flesh, and having done so, he put an end to sin. He finished it. On the cross, Jesus ended sin's condemning power. On the cross, Jesus brought sin's dominating and enslaving power to an end. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? He said, it is finished. And indeed it was. It really was. Through his suffering, Jesus, he put an end to sin. Jesus is the one who suffered in the flesh and who brought about a cessation of sin. And we, through our our faith union with Jesus have also died to sin. Because of Jesus' work and the application of redemption to us by His Holy Spirit, sin, it ceases to rule God's people. The root Greek word under our English word cease there is palvo, which sounds a little bit like pause, doesn't it? Um, The idea is to cause something or someone to cease from some activity or state. So here's what Peter's saying. Look, Jesus, he, He suffered in the flesh... That is to say, in his death on the cross, he has brought about a decisive break with sin. Jesus is done dealing with sin's penalty. Perhaps uh, commentator Edmund Clowney put it best when he wrote, quote, His death finished his involvement with our sin. If Jesus is finished with our sin, then we should be finished with it too. All right, that's the mindset that we should adopt. That's the thinking we should arm ourselves with. We should think, because Jesus is done with my sin, I'm done with sin too. I'm not a slave to it any longer. I'm not going to go on sinning so that grace may increase. Romans 6.1 I'm not going to make a practice of sinning. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 Jesus has made an end of all of my sin, as we sung earlier. And by the strength and grace of God's Holy Spirit, I should end my involvement with sin. After all, what did Peter say in chapter 2, verse 24? You skip over there, you might find it. Verse 24, chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus died, having dealt with our sin, so that we might die to sin, so that we might cease to be alive to sin, and instead, so that we would be alive to righteousness. Peter also said this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. You see, Jesus, He offered that once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And having offered that necessary sacrifice, He is done with sin. Through our faith union with Jesus, we have ceased to be slaves to sin. That's the sense in which we have ceased from sin. But there's another sense this is true too. Those who suffer for righteousness' sake... Those who are tempted to sin, but refuse, that is, cease, stop, and and, and do not go forward into the sin which they were tempted by, 
they show that they have made a decisive break with sin. In other words, those who identify with Jesus and refuse to sin as he did have, in a sense, ceased from sin. Now, as, as we all know, sadly, we haven't ceased to sin, right? No, sometimes we will give in to the sinful passions of the flesh. But, but giving in to the sinful passions of the flesh ought not be our way of thinking. That shouldn't be our, our default mode of thought. Our, our, our fundamental way of thinking ought to be, Jesus is done with sin, and therefore I should be done with sin. The, the rest of the time that I live in the flesh, verse 2, I should not live for sinful human passions, but live for the will of God. The governing principle of my life ought not be sin or, or human passions, but living for the will of God. That's how Jesus lived. This having nothing to do with sin and living for the will of God was how Jesus thought when he was in the world. Jesus, after all, is the one who said in John chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. One chapter later, Jesus said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 30. Jesus is, of course, the one who prayed, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39. We are to arm ourselves with this kind of thinking, with Jesus thinking. I will have nothing to do with sin, and I will live for the will of God. Beginning there in verse 3, Peter tells us why we should arm ourselves with this way of thinking. Peter encourages these brothers and sisters in Christ with a reminder that they have left behind their former ways. He says, look, you've, you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. These believers have left behind. They've ceased, in a sense, of living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. They, they've ceased from these sins. They've left behind the passions and powers of the flesh, and they shouldn't go back. Isn't the Lord Jesus powerful? He really changes people. No longer are these believers that Peter is writing to, no longer are these believers living in the weakness of debauchery and drunkenness and idolatry. But now they're living in the power of the Spirit of Christ, and they're able to say no to these passions, these powers, these temptations. Did you think it's strange that the culminating vice there in Peter's list do you see what that culminating vice is in Peter's list? It's lawless idolatry. Is that a strange way to end that list? Do you understand why Peter would have chosen that vice to kind of round out these list, this list of sins? The truth is, is that in one way or another, all of these sins are a form of worship. So it's appropriate that Peter ends this list with, with idolatry. Sin, it, it pulls you away from the worship of the Creator and calls you into the worship of creation. All of these sins in verse 3, they, they, they really force you to bow down before them. Right? The, the bottle makes you bow down. Sexual addiction makes you submit and do what it demands. Idols demand your worship. And in one way or another, all of the things in this list are really a form of worship. But Jesus, He's the only one who's really worthy of worship. And Jesus is the only one who can transfer us from the realm of false, empty, and lawless worship to true, right, and godly worship. Consider the power of Jesus here in verse 4. He changes people. He gives them power through the Holy Spirit that they did not have before. No longer are these believers living in the weakness of debauchery and idolatry, but now they're living in the power of the Spirit of Christ. And where they had previously lived on the, under the power of these passions and, and predilections, they now live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as such, they're living for the will of God. And in doing so, they're surprising their neighbors. Did you see that in verse 4? Their neighbors are surprised they're no longer doing these things because they've been changed. Their neighbors, actually, they, they go beyond surprise they slander these believers in Jesus. Believers are, are maligned, Peter says. And there are a whole host of reasons for why this happens. But, but chief among them is that unbelievers want to suppress their accusing guilty conscience. When believers in Jesus pursue righteousness, in the presence of unbelievers pursuing unrighteousness, 
the consciences of unbelievers accuse them. See, God has made humans in such a way that we know deep in our bones and in our spirits when we sin against God. And, and when that happens, we feel uncomfortable. That makes us feel uncomfortable. And that discomfort is really as it should be. We, we should never be comfortable in sin and rebellion against God. But one way to quiet an accusing conscience is to accuse someone else of wrong. To redirect or misdirect. And that's what's going on for Peter's readers. They have put on the mind of Christ. They've decided to be done with sin, especially those listed there in verse 3. And their pagan Gentile neighbors are verbally abusing them or maligning them. And the same thing happens today when Christians are maligned for not joining in with the world in the same flood of debauchery. Peter's words there, the same flood of debauchery, might bring to mind what was spoken of about Noah and how God judged the world uh, through the flood in just previous to our, our text. And what does Peter say there in the very next verse in verse 5? Doesn't Peter essentially say, Be patient, dear Christian, for Jesus will soon judge the living and the dead? Bringing God's judgment to mind is also something we ought to arm our minds with. Remembering that God will judge the world and right all, all wrongs helps us not to malign in return. Uh, remembering God's final judgment helps us to keep our mouths closed or to only open them after we've chosen our words with great care. Remembering God's final judgment means that we don't have to seek revenge or seek the last word or revile in return. Instead, we can remember God's coming judgment and plead with our neighbors to come to Jesus in faith. But what are we to make of verse 6 there? Well, what is Peter saying? And how does this really actually support his, his overall encouragement to arm ourselves with a mindset that seeks to make a break with sin and to live for the will of God, even when we're maligned for doing so? Well, there's a fairly robust consensus among evangelical scholars that Peter is reminding his readers of fellow believers in Jesus who heard the gospel preached but are now dead. Because of Jesus' coming in judgment, the gospel was proclaimed. Many heard and believed the gospel, and so they lived like Jesus. And as a result, they were maligned and mistreated like Jesus. Some were even martyred. Some were put to death like Jesus. They were put to death in the flesh. Believers were put to death in the flesh, just as Jesus was put to death in the flesh. In, in, in that sense, the world judged these believers who are now dead. The world judged these believers, and the world judged that these believers' way of life was worthy of death. But though these believers may have died at the hands of the world... They are now alive unto God in glory. That's what Peter's saying. God guaranteed that the gospel was preached to these saints so that he could guarantee their share of glory with Jesus. They might live now as God does. Though they may have endured the judgment of the world and suffered under the hand of human rulers, the world's verdict was not the final verdict. God's verdict was the final verdict. And because of Jesus, he deemed these saints worthy of glory and eternal life like his. Arm yourself with this same way of thinking. Just as Jesus had to suffer for righteousness sake and die, he was persuaded, Jesus was persuaded that he would get up from his grave. The grave was not the last word for Jesus, glory was. And that is why he could suffer maligning and mocking and mistreatment. And finally, death. So too, if you believe in Jesus, you will get up from your grave and you will receive glory. Here's how Peter's teaching in verse 6 helps us today. Don't let the threat of mistreatment or even death deter you from thinking like Christ did while he was in the world. Continue to say no to the passions of the flesh and commit yourself to doing God's will. Lengthen your view, brother or sister. Set your sights on eternity and live today in light of that last day. 
the coming judgment of Jesus keeps and guards us from pursuing perversity and the passions of the flesh. But in verses 7 to 11, we also see that the coming judgment of Jesus positively prods us on to display the grace and goodness of God to our neighbors and to God's people. If in verses 1 to 6, Peter has said, think like Christ when he was in the world, then in verses 7 to 11, Peter says, live like it's the end of the world, which is our second point. Let's read now verses 7 to 11 of 1 Peter chapter 4. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. But whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, the phrase, the end of all things is at hand, serves as something of a heading for everything that follows. That word, therefore, shows us that this is true. Since the end of all things is at hand, we should be self-controlled and sober-minded, full of prayer and love, hospitable and thankful, and given to service through God's strength. This manner of life, it brings glory to God. And how we live like the end is at hand. That's the form of Peter's argument in these verses. But we need to, to back up and consider afresh what Peter means when he says the end of all things is at hand. In the Greek, the phrase begins actually with the words all things. In other words, Peter wants his readers to understand the comprehensive scope of the conclusion. Everything's end. Literally, everything's telos, everything's goal is at hand. It's near. And, not surprisingly, this is entirely connected with what Peter has just said to us about Jesus coming in judgment. The end and goal is near, and it frames our ethics, our lives. Perhaps we've understated the case. For Peter has said that the end is at hand. That's not a phrase that we use very often these days, is it? But the idea is that the end of all things has come near. It's, it's drawn near. Remember when Jesus was preaching in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. What Jesus was saying was that the kingdom of God had drawn near to His hearers. Why was that the case? That's right, because the king had drawn near. Because the king had drawn near. You see, the kingdom comes when the king comes. And the kingdom of God is said to come in the scriptures at, at really the critical junctures of Jesus' work. So the kingdom comes in, in Jesus' incarnation. The kingdom comes in His resurrection. And the kingdom comes certainly in Jesus' return. And what Peter is saying here is that the end is near. So near that it's almost upon you. The king is ready to draw near yet again. Peter the apostles, and, and generally speaking, the writers of the New Testament understood that believers in Jesus were living in the last days. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, the apostles, Paul said that the end of the ages had come upon his readers. In, in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews opens affirming that the last days, that in the last days, God has spoken to us in and by His Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. James warns against laying up your treasures in the last days. James chapter 5, verse 3. The Apostle John says that it is the last hour. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Jude, he confirms that the words of Jesus revealed we are living in the last times. Jude 18. And the author of our very letter, Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, confirmed that Joel's prophecy concerning the last days was being fulfilled as the Spirit was poured out. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In this very letter, Peter has said that Jesus was made manifest in the last times. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. The end of all things is at hand. It is very near. It's almost upon us. In fact, there is a sense in which the end of all things has already begun. For Jesus has been raised from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation order, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And we who have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ are already, according to the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, we are part of that new created order. The end of all things has already begun. And our God is in the process, even now, of bringing all things to their consummated end and goal. The end has already begun, but it has not yet been completed and consummated. Still, the, the consummated end is guaranteed. And this means something for our lives today. Living in the final stage of redemptive history means that we ought to live like we're destined for a glorious kingdom. Peter has four specific attitudes and actions or attributes for Christians to pursue. First, we should be self-controlled and sober-minded. You see that there in verse 7. Second, we should love earnestly. You see that there in verse 8. Third, we should be hospitable and thankful. Verse 9. And fourth, we should serve through God's strength. Verse 10. If the end of all things is at hand, and it is, then we should be self-controlled and sober-minded. These two words expand and they explain one another. They give us insight on one another. We are to have a due sense of the place we live in redemptive history. We are to be sober. Not solemn, but sober. While the end of the world is a weighty matter, it is also cause for much joy for God's people. It's why Peter sets the reality before us so often in his letter. It brings us great delight. It is the end of the world as we know it, and we don't feel fine or frightful. It brings us delight. It's the end of the world as we know it, and we are joyous and jubilant, for we will soon see Jesus. And that is glorious. Being self-controlled and sober-minded is a near opposite of being drunk. Right? We, we certainly won't, don't want to be drunk with the world's passions and pleasures. We, we don't want to be intoxicated by the, the ease and the comfort that the world seeks to lull us to sleep with. Be mindful, brothers and sisters, that you can become intoxicated with the world's priorities, the world's passions, the world's pleasures. Our, um, our angst in these recent days over the cancellation of so many things has perhaps unmasked that we've been sipping the serenity that our world seeks to offer. And we've discovered that the world can't actually guarantee and secure it. The world can't deliver. Instead, we need to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Instead, we want to do what Jesus actually told his disciples, including Peter, to do. Before they fell asleep, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray. We want to watch and pray for the Lord's return. This is what Jesus' end time parables were so often about. Watch and pray. Watch and pray, Jesus would say. Stay alert. L listen to what Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 21, verses 34 to 36. Jesus said, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth but stay awake and at all times praying so that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man isn't it interesting that like jesus Peter, he actually pairs clarity of mind with prayer. Did you notice that? He pairs clarity of mind with prayer. We have to have clear minds to really pray. 
I mean, do you remember the last time you really tried to pray with a, a cloudy mind? Perhaps before your coffee, even this morning. It was hard, wasn't it, to pray with a, a fuzzy mind. When we lack self-control, when we are overtaken by sin and overtaken by the cares of this world, it's often difficult to pray. And we have to clear the clutter. Independence on the Holy Spirit. We have to practice self-control by saying no to sin. It has an entangling kind of nature to it, doesn't it? It slows us down. It muddies the water for us often. We don't see clearly. See clearly. We have to practice self-control by the help and grace of the Holy Spirit saying no to sin. Christ is done with it and we should be done with it too. That's not to say that we need to clean up our lives before we come to God in prayer. No, no. We, we go to God in prayer asking Him to forgive us and to clean up the mess that we've made. But let's recognize that our, our willingness to sin has a messiness and a, a muddying effect on our prayers. And when you pray, one of the things that can help you get clarity of mind is if you pray the Scriptures. Pray, pray the Scriptures even for your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, perhaps members of ABC, as you, as you walked in this morning, you, you picked up a, a, new, a new membership directory. How can you pray the, the Scriptures for your fellow brothers and sisters? Well, today is the 15th, so right now I'm going to show you how you can pray for page 15 of your directory. Alright? Right from our text. Our sister, Selah. We, we want to pray that she would arm herself with the way of thinking like the Lord Jesus Christ. Or our brother, Ben. We want to pray that he would live for the will of God. Our, our brother, Reinhardt. We want to pray that he would be done with the, the passions of the flesh. Our, our brother, Tristan. We, we want to pray that he would live with the end of all things in view today. Uh, we, we want to pray for our sister Ashley to be sober-minded. Uh, we want to pray for our brother Chris that he would devote himself to prayer today. I've just picked up words right from this passage. And these are wonderful things that you can pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's go ahead and pray scripture for one another. Uh, that, that brings great clarity to our prayers as well. We need to remember that the end is at hand. We need to give really the things of this world a, a due sense of proportion in light of what our future will be. In these strange days, we're, we're making decisions about when to go out, what groceries to buy, how much toilet paper to stock, and what excursions to pursue. A, a virus is constantly on our mind as we live and move and have our being. And it is shaping the way that we live. And, and really, frankly, that is as it should be. But Peter is saying that the end of the world ought to have a similar impact. It ought to be on our minds each and every day, informing what we do, where we go, how we live, how we speak. Indeed, this greater certainty, the end of all things, ought to have a greater impact on our day-to-day -day decisions than a virus, deadly though it is. This virus may reach some of us. The end of all things will reach all of us. So, we must be sober-minded and self-controlled. We've known that the world is going to end for quite a while. And too often, we fail to remember and live in light of that. Pray. Pray for faith to endure, to persevere, to remember that God is in control, and to do what is right and righteous in God's sight. Because the end of all things is at hand, keep loving one another earnestly, Peter says. Peter has already addressed this subject in his letter, specifically in chapter 1, verse 22. And Peter's once again addressing Christians and their love for one another. And that's because he learned the importance of this from Jesus. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. As in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, underneath the idea of loving one another is this idea of kind of like stretching yourself out in love for your brother or sister in Christ. Peter is calling us to spend ourselves in love for one another. He, he's calling to us to, to do as much as we can possibly do. And just when we feel like we, we don't have any more to give, to stretch a little more and to give a little more, to love more. 
Now we can't love like this in our own strength. So we run to the one who stretched himself out in love for us. Who stretched himself out in love on the cross. We, we go to Jesus and we say, I need your help. Help me to love my brother or sister in Christ. And we have to go to Jesus for help. Because did you see what, what Peter said there at the end of verse 8? We keep stretching ourselves out in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ because love covers a multitude of sins. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus did not expose our sins in the sight of God. Rather, he covered them with his blood and with his love. This is what love does. We forgive, we hide the faults and failings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. How many sins should we cover? Hundreds of them. A multitude of them. Where did Peter get this idea from? He got it from Jesus. Do you know which disciple asked Jesus this question in Matthew 18? Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Do you know what disciple that was? It was Peter. It was Peter who asked that question. And, you know, do you think by the time Peter wrote this letter, after sinning so many times against his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, do you think that by the time Peter wrote this letter, he was relieved that Jesus said, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times, or in some translations, 70 times seven. As one wise believer said, where love is thin, Faults are thick. Where love is thin, faults are always thick. Ask yourself, is your love thin? Think of the most difficult relationship you have. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in this church. Now ask yourself this. Is it easy or hard for me to find fault with that person? Like, if, if 15 faults just sprang to your mind, if 15 faults just sprung into your mind, is it possible that your love is too thin? Is it, is it possible that you have forgotten how much you have been forgiven by Jesus? Is it possible that you have forgotten how much you've been loved by the Lord Jesus? You should fear an unwillingness to forgive. You, you should... Fear a hesitation even to forgive. Don't let unforgiveness be found in your heart. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. What is more, love is eager to forgive. Because we know just how much we've been forgiven. That's why we read from Luke chapter 7 earlier in the service. Remember Jesus' words about the sinful woman from Luke chapter 7 verse 47? Jesus said, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Love and forgiveness, Jesus teaches us, they go hand in hand. As Mr. Spurgeon once said, eyes that have wept over our own sin will always be most ready to weep over the sins of others. If you have judged yourself with candor, you will not judge others with severity. You will be more ready to pity than to condemn, more anxious to hide a multitude of sins than to punish a single sinner. Love. Love does not expose our brother or sister's faults and sins for all to see. Rather, love hides them. If we cover sin, then we should certainly overlook the annoying habits of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should overlook a propensity to levity, just to, to kind of make a joke of everything, make it all light. We should overlook irritability, always being irked by this or that. We should overlook verbosity, eating up all the conversation with your own words. We overlook a, a tendency to be nosy and to intrude, overlook a, a tendency not to step forward and serve. Overlook the problem of pettiness, digging your heels in on unimportant matters. We overlook petulancy, a tendency to pity oneself. If we are to cover over sins, then we are certainly to cover over minor offenses like these. 
It's just part of what it means to love one another earnestly. To stretch ourselves out in love one more time. To cover over the faults and failings of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love earnestly. For the Lord Jesus Christ has loved earnestly. He, in His immense mercy, has stretched His whole life across ours. So that we might be forgiven. Peter, uh, he knows how to make us feel uncomfortable. Not only are we to do a really difficult thing, such as um, love a sometimes unlovely people, but we're to do what might seem to be an even greater challenge, to be hospitable to a sometimes unlovely people, to have them closer, maybe sometimes, than you might like. Peter says that in light of the end, we must show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Right? It would be one thing, right, if Peter just told us to show hospitality to one another, but then he had to go and tack on those words without grumbling. He knows how to get to our hearts, doesn't he? Showing hospitality is, in some ways, just another way of showing love to brothers and sisters in Christ. And that word hospitality, as you may know, literally means love of stranger. But here, Peter is especially commending believers to show love to fellow believers. Most likely, Peter had in mind believers who were passing through town. In that sense, they were strangers to the, to the local believers, to the local church. Uh, hotels back then were called inns, and they weren't safe. Often they were places of ill repute, so it was important that believers had a place to stay once they got to town. Here, Peter is commanding believers to share their homes generously and to do so without grumbling. Peter, you see, he puts no limits on a believer's hospitality except that it be done without grumbling. One of our challenges with hospitality is that sometimes we aim for the extravagant when really the ordinary will do. Another one of our challenges with hospitality is that our minds are set in the default mode that our homes are our homes rather than the Lord's to use. Another challenge for our hospitality is that our default orientation can sometimes be that our homes are closed rather than open. What if we each had an open door policy? That if a brother or sister in Christ popped by, we wouldn't keep them out, but invite them in. How would your life and the life of your home change if you recognize that your home is only temporary? It's not your castle. And that it's to be put to good use to bless others. Don't grumble. Instead, give thanks for the opportunity to love and support a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. Give thanks for the opportunity to bless him. For God has so richly blessed your home. Give thanks for God sending this believer along to pull you out of your routine self-love, maybe, and into redemptive service. Give thanks for the opportunity to prepare a room for Him. For our God is preparing a place for us. Hospitality, it's a really wonderful bridge between love and service. Hospitality is love through service. And then there in verse 10, Peter tells us that we should serve through God's strength. Even before Peter tells us to serve, he tells us that we've received gifts. Did you notice that? Peter doesn't specify the gifts that we have received. But he does tell us where they come from. They've come from God. Whatever gifts we have, we have them from God. There's no room for boasting for every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from our Heavenly Father. The gifts that He gives are generous and gracious and good for serving others, not ourselves. Notice carefully that we are to be stewards of these gifts. And these gifts are varied. God does not dispense the same gifts to all. And that's fine with him, even if it's not fine with us, though it should be fine with us. Life, as I have often told my children, is uneven. Gifts, Peter tells us, they're varied. God's grace is varied, and this is very good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about spiritual gifts in the church, he makes the point that every church needs every member of the body. We're not whole We're not complete, whole, without one another. We're not all hands. We're not all feet. We're not all mouths or noses or eyes or ears. Rather, we need each other. We're all members of the same body, making up different parts of the body. 
And we need the varied grace gifts that God has given to us. Be careful not to envy the gift that God has given to others. For in doing so, you may despise the gift that God has chosen to give you. He hasn't been unkind and he hasn't done you wrong. He, hasn't given, he, he has given you what you need to minister to the brothers and sisters around you. He's given you what your brothers and sisters need. So be a good steward and serve God and your brothers and sisters with whatever gifts you have. Start serving where there is a need. And in all likelihood, you'll eventually find something that you excel in and that your church family is especially blessed by. In verse 11, you see there, Peter addresses two common gifts in the life of the church, speaking and serving. It's possible that Peter is addressing the offices of elder and deacon. Generally speaking, elders teach and deacons serve. But more than likely, Peter is simply giving kind of general categories or classifications of gifts. Speaking and serving may be a simple way of classifying the the number of varied gifts that God gives. Whatever the case may be, the gifts of speaking and serving are determined by God. Right? They're, they're given by Him. They're determined by God. They're dependent upon God. They're directed for God and done in the strength of God. These gifts bring glory to the giver, not the one who exercises or employs these gifts. That's why Peter says there, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The end of everything is at hand. And so God should be glorified in everything until Jesus comes again. Jesus, he deserves glory. He deserves an infinitely weighty place in our lives. All that he has done and will do ought to shape our moments and our days. He rules and reigns over all. To him belongs dominion, the right to rule, and the right to return at his Father's will. He holds the right to rule and to reign and he will hold that right forever and ever. You'll likely notice an amen on the end there of verse 11. And that shows us that Peter's last sentence there in verse 11 is a benediction. It's a, it's a doxology. It's a prayer of blessing and praise to Jesus. I wonder, as you have considered this portion of Peter's letter, has your heart, has your heart filled with blessing and praise to Jesus? Jesus has made an end of sin and promises to keep his people to the end. This is good news. Friend, if you're here visiting with us this morning, we're delighted that you've come. If you're not a believer and follower of Jesus who regularly gathers with us, we're so delighted that you're here with us this morning. I wonder, maybe you've come because it feels like the end of the world is approaching. Everyone is acting like the world is going to end. And maybe after looking at Peter's letter, you're surprised the Bible actually says the world is going to end. And it is at hand. Maybe everything that is going on in our world has set you to wonder, why is there sickness and brokenness in our world? Well, the Bible teaches that disease, decay, and death are in our world because of the first man's sin. That's why. You see, God, He created the world and all that is in it. He created the first man and the first woman, and He put them in a perfect paradise, a place free of disease and decay and death. They, Adam and Eve, they had everything they could have ever wanted. They had everything they should have ever wanted. God told them that they may eat of every tree just except one. And God promised that in the day that they eat of it, should they, should they disobey God's command, if they ate of that tree, God promised that they would surely die. Sadly, lacking self-control, lacking sober-mindedness, lacking love for God, lacking gratitude for all that He had given, lacking a willingness to serve God, the first man, Adam, he sinned. He disobeyed and ate the fruit of which he was told not to eat. And with that first man's sin, the world was plunged into ongoing disobedience, subjected to disease, decay, and death. The wages of sin really was death, just as God had said. 
But in his goodness and kindness and mercy, God promised and planned to send his one and only most beloved son to reverse this. The eternal son of God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we have not lived. He had nothing to do with sin. He never sinned. He was perfectly righteous. And yet, he offered his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross. Jesus' loving sacrifice covered not just a multitude of sins, but all of the sins of God's people. Jesus suffered in the flesh. He was buried in the grave. But three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was accepted in God's sight. So friend, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. There is so much suffering in this world. There is too much suffering in this world. And the only thing worse than suffering in this life is eternal suffering under the wrath of God. All those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus have the promise they will escape eternal suffering as a consequence of their sin. All those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus have the promise that one day they will enjoy the paradise promised in Revelation 23, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what the Scriptures say about what is coming for those who believe and trust in Jesus. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling places of God, the dwelling place of God is with man. There will be no more social distancing, right, between God and man. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. This, this is the longing of our hearts today, isn't it? And it should be the longing of our hearts every day. And this is where I want us to conclude. Thinking about the day when death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the former things have passed away. Until that day when the former things have passed, have passed away. We must think like the Lord Jesus thought when he was in the world and live like it is the end of the world. We must die to sin and live to righteousness. We must live for the will of God rather than our own. We must be self-controlled and sober-minded. We ought to love and forgive as we have been loved and forgiven. We ought to open our homes and hearts as the Lord has opened his heart to us And opened his home in heaven to us. And we ought to spend our lives in service for the glory of Jesus. For to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.